0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It has been the longest of long goodbyes, but when voters elect a new federal government in Germany this year, they will bring the curtain down on the 16 year chancellorship of Angela Merkel. In office since 2005, Merkel has been by far Europe's most influential politician of the 21st century, steering Germany, and to a degree the European Union, through the euro crisis of a decade ago, the refugee crisis of 2015, and the shock caused by Britain's departure from the EU. All the while Merkel has been seen as a steadying hand at the wheel. So what will be the consequences of her departure from office? Who is likely to succeed her? What change of approach might they bring? Derek Scully, our Berlin correspondent, will join me in a moment to discuss those questions and more. Later, Dennis Staunton, our London editor, will take us through the highlights of Nicola Sturgeon's evidence this week to a parliamentary committee investigating her government's handling of sexual harassment allegations against her predecessor, Scotland's First Minister, Alex Salmond.
1: Alex Salmond has been, and I've said this many times, one of the closest people to me in my entire life, and some people around this table know what I mean by that more than than others might. I would never have wanted to get Alex Hammond.
0: But it's to Berlin first, and Derek Scally is on the line. Derek, it has been a long goodbye. Angela Merkel announced that she will be stepping down this year as long ago as 2018. Is she definitely going, and if so, when?
2: Oh, definitely. I think anyone who's seen her in the last few weeks realizes this is a woman, I think, who probably regrets staying on for this. Her last term, it was the euro crisis that did it. Uh, and Barack Obama insisted you really need to stay on, you know, with Donald Trump and the euro and the refugee crisis. Do we really need, uh, you know, we need a steady pair of hands in Europe? So she stayed on. And I think uh, if she'd known what was coming her way, she might have considered otherwise. But yeah, as you said, she's just been around forever. I mean, she, her time in power goes right back to 1990. She came from East Germany, Brought into Helmut Kohl's cabinet, and her fingerprints are even on the Kyoto Protocol. I mean, if it wasn't for her, there wouldn't be any Kyoto. So climate policy even has her fingerprints. But yeah, she's been in power for since two thousand and five, and everyone has sort of agreed. You know, politics has changed, the world has changed, and while her, she is just irre, almost indispensable in terms of her, her 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 style, her no her low wattage, low ego style. Compromise is important, and um, all of that has been great. But I think the world has changed, and perhaps people are saying maybe we
0: need we need change also at the top in Germany. Now, the federal election, uh, Derek, is in is in September. So is that the moment really at which she goes? That's the moment at which she ceases
2: to have political power. Um, she has already given up ahead the chairmanship of the Christian Democratic Union, her party. So she's already a slightly diminished political figure. But in terms of a leader, September's election comes, but it will go. And then the coalition exploratory talks, coalition talks begin. So it's quite likely she'll still be uh, in, in the chancellery, at least in a commissary role until Christmas.
0: Now, as you mentioned there, it seems like she's been around forever. Um, is she indispensable or what has she got that appears to make her that way?
2: Yeah, that's what we were talking about before. I mean she um she does has a style of politics which is like nobody knows anything about her. She is completely viewed as incorruptible. I mean, nobody would ever imagine for a moment that she would take a backhander, that she's in in it for herself. I, she's um She's almost, yeah, she's just a very unusual political figure and she has a great grasp of detail. You know, she's had to get her head around everything from refugee crises euro crises. Now she's um, drawing on her, her background as a scientist uh, to understand the you know pandemics. Uh, so she always gets deep into the detail. And everyone I know who's worked with her says she's always the best informed person in the room. And also her personality doesn't get in the way. She leaves her personality at the door. Some people would say that's a, a trademark of, of women in leadership. Um, but it's, it's just extremely unusual. And I don't think anyone coming after her has any of her, has her format and uh, has a grasp of detail. Uh, not nor are they able to park their personalities at the door. And to be honest, that's the mainstream of, of politics these days. I mean, if you look to France, to Macron, I mean, he he seems to believe that his personality and his um, temperament is part of the package and voters perhaps agree or disagree. But you know, Merkel does not have temperament. She just believes in getting the job done. So I think people are already regretting or already uh, looking forward to a future where that will be sorely missed. Well, somebody will have to come after her. Um, who are
0: the front runners to succeed her?
2: Well, there seems to be two front runners. Um, uh, both are men. Uh, both are you know, older white men, as people would say these days. One is Armin Laschet. He's the new CDU leader, so Merkel's party. You now he just came in in January. He is best known as the minister president of North Rhine-Westphalia. That's the this the sort of the Rhineland area of Germany in the west. Um, yeah, he is from the Rhineland region. Uh, North rhine-westphalia has 80 million people. So this is a big state with a big power, a big economic force. And the CDU there, so I mean, Lachit's CDU there is hugely influential. So they will all be gunning for him to be um, running for uh, the chancellery to succeed Angela Merkel. But he has competition. Uh, his competitor is Marcus Söder. Now, he's the minister president of Bavaria down in the south. It has a population of 13 million, but he's not a member of the CDU now. He's the leader of the CDU's sister party Party. That's the CSU, the Christian Social Union. They have been in power pretty much uh, since the Second World War in Bavaria. So he thinks now is the time for a change. And I think the key issue to understand or to differentiate the two is Armin Laschet views himself as the continuity candidate. Marcus Söder is sort of banking on change. And that seems to be what the election will be about, even though it's uh, still six months away.
0: Uh, tell us a bit more about each of them, Derek, and and the case each is making for himself to be Germany's next chancellor. If you take Armin Laschet first, I mean, what might he bring to the table?
2: Yeah, as I said, continuity. Um, He uh, has tried to differentiate himself from Merkel and I think his strategists have said, look, the best way to succeed Merkel is to be like Merkel, to be continuity. He'll be very much, I think Merkel would like to present herself also in sort of the Helmut Kohl tradition, very much a centrist, very much trying to bring in all wings uh, and 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 she's modernized the party. She took the Cdu a little bit more to the centre because she figured elections are won and lost in the political centre. You don't get uh, back into power by being a conservative. So, I mean, Lashid is very much in that vein. And he's from Western Germany. He's from, uh, he is from the, uh, the region of Aachen, which is not too far from Belgium. He's spent time in the European Parliament and he very much sees sort of the bigger European picture. And uh, really, I have seen or heard nothing from him that would distinguish him that much from Merkel, at least at this stage. But at some point, I imagine as the election comes closer, he will have to distance himself from her and criticise her and saying, I will do everything better because if she's done everything great, you know, why would they vote for him? The other Candidate uh, Markus Söder, he's very much saying, "Look, uh, we need change. We need to keep it, keep it real, sort of in the centre right." But if you vote for me, vote for Bavaria, you'll get a slightly different take on power. He's slightly more conservative socially and economically. And Bavaria is just a huge economic success story. It's sort of the leading light in Germany, whether it's technology or uh, Bavaria is even trying to get into space travel. And he really wants to say, look, Germany is slowing down. It's a bit of a uh, digitalization. It's it's really fallen behind, uh, uh, digital transformation. Uh, and he says, look, we need we need change and I will be slightly more dynamic and slightly more, I suppose, along the, the lines of of, of um, Macron that just slightly more power- a slightly more presidential style of leadership. And um, he's saying, look, we need, to, we need to shake up Germany and I'm the man to do it.
0: Which of these candidates Derek, should we be cheering on from the sidelines? I mean, would either of them be better for, for Europe and, and indeed for Irish interests?
2: Um, it's really hard to get excited about either of them at the moment. Obviously, the election campaign is yet to gear up and all the and energy is going in the pandemic, but neither of them have had a great pandemic. So if you're looking for you know, a leader to show you know, a pandemic or a natural disaster, is a great time to see do they have leadership skills? And both of them have sort of fumbled at various stages. So neither of them can has one up on the other in that respect. Um, both of them really um, are... Um, Apparatchiks. I mean, they're very much party people. Um, you could say Henri Laschet because he spent some time in the European Parliament has a more European-rounded view. But um, neither of them seem to have set the world alight so far and um, they just seem to be quite uh, standard candidates. Merkel, I mean, by comparison, the more you compare her to the people who want to succeed her, um, the more you realise just how unusual she was.
0: And what's the mood within the CDU-CSU camp uh, towards them?
2: It's not hugely uh, warm, Um, like a huge number. I think it was a third of people didn't vote for him, for Armin Laschet as the new CDU leader. There was another, um, no, sorry, it was almost half. There was another candidate, far more conservative, Friedrich Merz. Uh, He's sort of an economic liberal uh, and there's a huge conservative business wing of the party that believed that's exactly the type of man uh, Germany and the CDU needs. So Laschet really doesn't have support of the conservative wing of the party or the you know the business leaders wing of the party, which is hugely influential in a center-right party like the CDU. So um he needs to win them over, but it really doesn't look like that's gonna happen. So if you're starting an election campaign, running for office, and a huge amount of your own party doesn't really believe in you, how will you win over voters? So that's the dilemma he has. Söder has another dilemma. He's from Bavaria, and he's only the third person. If he is selected, he will only be the third person from the CSU, this Bavarian party who've ever run for chancellor, and the two people who tried in the past failed. And uh, while Bavaria is a huge success story, and Bavaria is the state most Germans sort of look up to as the way they wish Germany was, uh, Bavarian politicians tend not to play too well in the national scene. So Söder is anxious to show he's not just a provincial politician with dreams of of uh, glory in Berlin and the Chancellor, he needs to present himself as a, as a as a full format politician for the entire country, not just Bavaria. So being Bavarian is a help, but it's also a hindrance.
0: Now, of course, if either of these candidates is to be Chancellor, Derek, the, the CDU strucks CSU will have to maintain the stranglehold on power that they've had since 2005 but what are the chances of a coalition being formed after september that excludes the cdu well it looks most likely that the cdu will stay in power
2: as you said they've been in power since 2005 and they seem to have the most attractive or the most realistic option both politically and arithmetically the greens um they would be the most op- likely option as a as a coalition partner at present most of the time merkel's been in power in a grand coalition so a large uh, political grouping with the social democrats the center left but the social democrats are sort of a, a ever decreasing circles of political influence and they are really dwindling as a political force. The Greens seem to be, the Greens have overtaken them in polls and seem to be the most likely option. But sort of a, a CDU, centre-right, Green alliance has never been tried at a federal level. So it would be interesting and if that would work. So that's it's most likely that the CDU will stay in. But there are other options. Um, you could have sort of a, a uh, a, a centre-left government where this the, the Greens would lead and you'd have the Social Democrats in there and they'd bring in the left party. They just choo- chose new leaders uh, a week ago. There's still a lot of uh, old baggage between them historically with the other parties. The, the left party are the East German, the former East German ruling party, but you know, on on paper they have about 42, 43 percent, so they're getting close to a parliamentary majority. Uh, and then there's the other option which they, it's, they wouldn't use the left party, they'd use the uh, the Liberal Party, the Free Democrats. But again, it's it's quite unlikely. The most likely option is that the CDU would stay in government and bring in the Greens.
0: And if the SPD and the Greens, and others, do succeed in, in forming a coalition that excludes the CDU, are there any potential, you know, candidates emerging from, from the field to succeed Merkel as somebody who's not in the CDU, in other words?
2: Yes, I think the most interesting thing about the uh, the race to succeed uh, Anglo-American is that interesting leaders are emerging in the other parties. I would say the parties, the other party leaders are far more interesting than what the CDU CSU has on offer. Um, the Greens, who would be a likely um, they would be a junior partner in a coalition with the CDU. But just for the sake of argument, they decided to form a, a non-CDU coalition. They would be the largest party, probably, according to the polls. And they have two very interesting leaders. Um, They always have sort of dual leaders, always a man and a woman. And one is Robert Habeck, the other is Anne-Elena Baerbock, and they are very... Capable, very effective, um, very uh, canny politicians who've realized that, you know, the way to make green mainstream, you have to slightly dilute the message and not be a sort of a party who wants to ban schnitzel and sausages, but you try and make climate Policy uh, attractive to people and try and take it into the mainstream. People would say they're diluting it too much and they're too they're gagging for power, but they have very f- fine and very impressive uh, leaders. Uh, the Social Democrats have a huge problem because they're just dwindling in polls well below 20%. But um, Olaf Scholz, who's currently the federal finance minister in Angela Merkel's cabinet, he's a very experienced politician in uh, Berlin and also in Hamburg where he was uh, the governing mayor for many years. But he's got a few things on his uh, hanging Around him, including um, uh, the, the Wirecard scandal, the digital uh, service operator, which collapsed uh, last year, and a huge, huge. Um embarrassment for Germany as a business, uh, as, a, as a place to do business. And uh, it could be that this Wirecard scandal will come back uh, uh, because it all happened while he was on his watch as finance minister. So that could be awkward. And this, the SPD is really not in a healthy state. And then the left party have two new leaders just last weekend. So they seem to be trying to modernise, you know, and make a, a sort of a younger, more attractive, hard left party. at uh, times like this, you know, the idea of social justice uh, after the pandemic could be quite attractive to young. Voters, a bit like sort of Sinn Féin in in Ireland, so it's a um, really quite interesting leaders emerging. um, Just you know, they seem to have jumped a generation after Merkel, and uh, and we'll see how they do. But uh, the CDU CSU. Uh, as the most likely senior government partner. They are their two candidates don't really, neither of them are fresh all They've all been around the block several times before.
0: And compared to Merkel, they will always come off second best. How do Germans in general, Derek, view the prospect of life without Merkel? Is it with trepidation or are they tired of having the same leader for so long?
2: Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I had a piece uh, this week in the Irish Times about just the, the growing frustration about vaccinations and um, that Germany had such a good first wave last year, relatively speaking, it was able to test quickly and kept down virus and deaths early on in the pandemic but things are slipping now and increasingly a question is being asked because it's been so slow at rolling out vaccines that um, the whole Merkel approach to things is often uh, a line of criticism I've heard of Angela Merkel over the years is always that she's she's quite tactical she thinks tactically and not strategically and there is a sort of a sense that this whole the vaccine rollout it's a huge logistic operation you need to have sort of an overview you need to know what's happening where and you can't while you can react to a, a vaccine or to a pandemic Uh, at the start everyone was just reacting trying to get through the day and the week once you move into vaccine territory that's logistics that's planning that's oversight that's craft that strategy and there doesn't really seem to be a strategy it's sort of a lot of running around and even German voters who would be in favor of the CDU or vote for Merkel they're saying I don't see a strategy here so it could be that by staying on that one last time that this will unless Germany turns things around quickly on vaccines it's a huge it's a hugely complex task and Germany is a large federal country so Merkel only has limited power but unless it's turned around and quickly I think that's quite likely will tarnish her legacy that, you know, to someone, you can only drive by sight so long, eventually you need to pull out the map. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a map or somebody in charge in Germany at the moment. So unless she sort of pulls everything, all of the responsibility to herself and says, I'm going to sort this, she could go out a bit on a, on a, on a bum note, which uh, considering her achievements in the last 15 years uh, would be, uh, for many of her supporters, a
0: shame. And finally, Derek, just to stick with the driving metaphors, does Merkel plan to retire from public life entirely or... You know, will she still be around as a a backseat driver of some kind?
2: When you look at, she's been in power for 15 years, but when you look at her workload and the number of crises she's had to master, I think, you know, she's really been in power for 30 years. She's probably worked harder than any politician of modern times. So I think she's had enough. Uh, she's never really been in, I think she quite likes power, but I don't think she's as addicted to power as other politicians who have been in the saddle as long as she has. Uh, so she has been, you know, she was floated as a possible European uh, commission president. and There was also uh, talk, of her taking over at the UN but everyone I know who worked closely with her say she just laughs and just says no uh, I'm going to retire and grow vegetables and make potato soup um, you know there's even some people are actually say, suggesting it's unlikely she'll write a memoir now maybe if, if a publisher Uh, makes her an offer she can't refuse she might decide to go with it but I think she quite likes the idea of just disappearing and nobody ever quite knowing what she thought in what moment because uh, you know it's the classic the politicians retire and write the memoir and take the check from the publisher but um, I think she quite is tickled by the idea of just disappearing nobody will ever quite know what she thought when and why she acted as
0: she did. Well I think we'd all read that memoir maybe you'll get to ghostwrite it Derek but in any case um, thanks for that. Now, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, endured an eight-hour grilling yesterday, Wednesday, from a parliamentary committee investigating her government's handling of sexual harassment allegations against her predecessor and former ally, Alex Salmond. In his own explosive six hours of testimony last Friday, Salmond said the top figures in Scotland's political and bureaucratic leadership engaged in a conspiracy to destroy his reputation with a campaign that saw him charged for serious sexual offences that could have sent him to prison for years. Yesterday, Sturgeon strongly rejected those allegations.
1: I feel I must rebut the absurd suggestion that anyone acted with malice or as part of a plot against Alex Salmond. That claim is not based in any fact.
0: In her opening statement, Sturgeon also apologised to the two women who had made the sexual harassment complaints against Salmond, saying they were let down.
1: As a result of a mistake that was made, a very serious mistake in the investigation of the complaints against Alex Salmond... Two women were failed and taxpayers' money was lost. I deeply regret that. Although I was not aware of the error at the time, I am the head of the Scottish Government and so I want to take this opportunity to say sorry to the two women involved and to the wider public.
0: Dennis Staunton, our London editor, was watching the proceedings yesterday and he joins me now. Dennis, Nicola Sturgeon was under pressure going into that committee hearing. How did she perform?
3: She performed very well. Alex Salmon performed extremely well last Friday. He was up for six hours. She was up for eight. And what they both had in common was they were both very much on top of the detail. Very hard to imagine two politicians in Westminster who could have handled... Uh, you know grillings like this, uh, and particularly you know uh, the, this massive detail over such a long period so well. So he performed very well last week. She likewise. She was in a more difficult position because, as you say, she was under some pressure going into it. Uh, there had been uh, you know some documents released, which appeared to cast doubt on some of the versions of events that she had been giving earlier. And uh, and so, but in fact, she she seemed to have some kind of a plausible answer on each of the issues that could have been difficult for her. One of the differences between the way the two of them testified was that Alex Salmon was clearly uh, attempting to control his emotions and to control the anger that you could see was simmering over what he felt was uh, the wrong that was done to him. Nicola Sturgeon, on the other hand, she appeared at times to deliberately introduce an element of the personal and of the emotional into her testimony.
0: In fact, in her opening statement, she described how Salmond had shown her a letter outlining the complaints that had been made against him.
1: This letter set out the fact that complaints of sexual harassment had been made against him by two individuals. It made clear that these complaints were being investigated under the procedure adopted at the end of 2017. And it set out the details of what he was alleged to have done. Reading this letter... Is a moment in my life that I will never forget. And although he denied the allegations, he gave me his account of one of the incidents complained of, which he said he had apologised for at the time. What he described constituted, in my view, deeply inappropriate behaviour on his part, perhaps another reason why that moment is embedded so strongly in my mind.
0: That was the first moment in her testimony, Dennis, that the Sturgeon reminded the committee of the original allegations against Salmond. But but that was something she returned to, wasn't it, again and again?
3: Yes, she uh, was at pains in a way to remind or at least she took every opportunity to remind people that although Alex Salmond was acquitted on 13 counts of sexual assault uh, in in a a criminal uh, court case last year, that nonetheless he had admitted to inappropriate behaviour. Uh, with various women, both I- during the course of his trial and also then in these incidents that she that she mentioned, where he had actually you know apologised in some cases to people or simply acknowledged that his behaviour hadn't been appropriate. And so she was uh, very keen to remind the committee that they wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for the fact that these complaints had been made against him.
1: That he was acquitted by a jury of criminal conduct is beyond question, beyond question. But I know... Just from what he told me, that his behaviour was not always appropriate. And yet, across six hours of testimony, there was not a single word of regret, reflection, or even simple acknowledgement of that. I can only hope that in private, the reality might be different.
3: And so, this, you know, because this inquiry is about her government's handling of these complaints uh you know the focus has been on her and on her government and on the civil service and how they all handle these things and she wanted to bring this back to the very origin of it and just reminding them that alex salmon was uh as you know one of his lawyers described him a flawed man
0: now another assertion that salmon made on friday that she rejected uh, yesterday was that she knew about the the complaints against him earlier than she had admitted to what was the significance of that uh, kind of controversy dennis
3: the significance is that uh, you know at, at the same time as this inquiry parliamentary inquiry is going on and basically this is an investigation into how the scottish government uh, dealt with two complaints uh, by women against uh, Alex Salmond, and Alex Salmond took a, a, a court case uh, against it, and the, the government, after a period, conceded that the, uh, that, the that the process that they used, uh, that their investigation was unlawful because it was tainted by bias, because. The chief investigating officer had actually spoken to uh, two of the women before uh, they actually made their complaints. So, uh, so, and this costs an awful lot of money. But so that's one investigation that's going on. But a separate investigation by the former Irish Director of Public Prosecutions, James Hamilton, is looking into whether Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code. And one of the questions is, uh, you know, uh, there was a meeting which uh, happened on March the 29th of uh, 2018 where, uh, where Alex Salmond and his people say that Nicholas Sturgeon was aware of the fact that uh, he was going to tell her that these complaints had been made against him and that then she subsequently met him at her house on the 2nd of April and uh, And so she had a meeting, and there he showed her the letter that she was talking about. The significance of the two dates is that she didn't report what had happened at the meeting on the second of April to the uh, to the civil service. and onto the ministerial code, if it's government business, as opposed to party business, then she's supposed to have that meeting recorded and she's supposed to inform the civil service. She says that because she didn't know what the meeting was about, she knew that uh, Salmond was upset and she thought he was going to come and tell her that he was going to resign from the Scottish National Party. In fact, uh, you know what he was doing was talking about this complaint and about the government's procedure, so it was government business. To add a twist to the tale, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, Peter Morrell, is the, is the chief executive of the SNP. He arrived home while this meeting was going on on the 2nd of April, but he didn't join it because he thought it was government business and she thought initially she says that it was party business so uh, so so this was you know it's a complicated story but at the same time it is significant if First of all, she didn't record and do the right thing with regard to a a meeting that was about government business. And secondly, if she misled Parliament when she said subsequently that this was the first time that she had heard about these allegations. Both of those would be breaches of the ministerial code. And generally speaking, the convention is if you're found to be in breach of the ministerial code, you resign. And so, so that was really what the significance of this was all about. And what else did
0: Nicola Sturgeon push back on in her testimony yesterday?
3: Well, the other accusation against her really was that uh, that she had persisted in defending uh, a legal action taken uh, by uh, Alex Salmond against the government, saying that uh, its uh, investigation of him was unlawful. And she persisted for a couple of months you know, with defending that action, despite the fact that the Scottish government's external lawyers had said that it looked like they were going to lose it. And, uh, and so they did, as it turned out, go, uh, go on to lose it. And, that, and then uh, that cost the Scottish government a lot of money, possibly up to a million uh, pounds in legal fees. And Alex Sound's charge was that they kept this judicial review going because they knew that it had uh you know that it had been a waste of time and money and that they were going to lose it but what they hoped was that the criminal charges against him would come and that they would then uh freeze the other uh, action and so they'd kind of get away with the fact that they uh that they had you know taken the wrong legal step her answer to that was that uh, the legal advice was first of all just legal advice, but also that that it changed, and so that you know that there had been some doubts expressed. But then other lawyers were saying they're still you know in with a good chance that there was a reason to go on with it, just because they wanted to test whether the actual procedures that they had introduced were legal. Because one of the uh, the arguments that uh, that Alex Salmon was making was that actually the whole process, you know, the whole system was was illegal. So there were reasons to keep going with this action, you know, altogether apart from whether it was going to succeed or not. But also that uh, once the legal advice became much clearer that they were doomed to failure, that she acted on that.
0: Dennis, where does all this leave uh, Nicola Sturgeon? Do you think she's done enough to silence calls for her resignation? It's critical time, of course, with, with Scottish parliamentary elections coming up.
3: She won't have silenced calls from the Conservatives, for example, for her resignation. I mean, they said she should resign even before she went in to testify uh, before this committee. But I think what she did do was that she, she gave those people who want to give her the benefit of the doubt a plausible reason for doing so on each of the main accusations against her. And so on every single one, first, was she involved in a plot against uh, Alex Salmond? She basically said, this is an absurd uh, suggestion. And then she went through why it was a ridiculous idea. Secondly, she gave a reasonable explanation uh, about uh, the nature of these meetings that we were discussing. And then there was also the third part was to do with why she and her government persisted with the defense of this legal action after some of her external lawyers had said that they were definitely going to lose. And this obviously was going to cost an awful lot of money and it ended up costing uh, 500,000 pounds in Alex Salmon's legal fees and probably something similar in terms of the rest of the cost of it. So maybe a million. And again, she was able to give uh, a plausible answer as to why she carried on. So I think for those people who don't like her anyway, they're not going to suddenly start liking her now. But I think for most of those who actually do want to give her the benefit of the doubt, they were able to do so. She ha- She's not out of the woods. First of all, James Hamilton's uh, inquiry, that's going to report uh, later in March. And if he says that she was guilty of breaching the ministerial code, she may not have to resign, but she'll certainly be damaged by it. I think what's likely to happen with the parliamentary committee is because it's sort of broken down on partisan lines, they probably won't agree a position uh, or a conclusion. And so in that sense, uh, you know, that will just be left kind of in the air. The final question is, has it damaged Nicola Sturgeon's reputation, because she is by far the most popular politician in Scotland. She's generally uh, admired, even by those who don't particularly like her, as somebody who is in command of detail, that she knows what's going on. Part of her defence here was that although she understands the detail of everything that's going on, she was forgetful about certain things when it might have been convenient not to remember them. And so whether this actually somehow just undermines uh, this reputation that she has developed over the years, uh, that that remains to be seen. And then finally, when they go into uh, these elections in May, the expectation has been that the Scottish National Party, which is now in a, its a minority government, that they would win an overall majority at Holyrood. If They fail to do that, even if they can still come back with the support of, say, the Greens that they have now. Uh, Nonetheless, it'll appear to be something of a disappointment. And so it may be that these divisions within the SNP have, uh, you know, somehow undermined the party and its performance. That remains to be seen in May.
0: Dennis, thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more news and analysis from our network of foreign correspondents, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.